Have you ever asked yourself why? Why do I exist? Why is Jesus the only way? Have you ever wondered why you should have community? Why you should be in a small group? Why do I give? Why would I be generous? Why should I serve? And why would I share my faith? Have you ever asked yourself, why should I love my neighbor? That's a hard one. And why would I live a missional life? Why do bad things happen to good people? We all have so many questions. Let's take the time to dive into what scripture has to say. So today I'm going to ask the question and try to answer it for you. Why should I live a generous life? Why is living a life of generosity important? Here's what I would say. How we use our money, which is not ours, I'll get to that. How we spend money reveals so much of what our true priorities really are. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most and gave the most for this present world were those who thought the most of the next world, which means those who gave the most, those who invested the most, those that really lived lives of generosity were fixated on the next world, did not allow this world to control who they were. They were living with eternity as the backdrop. Because of where I'm going, that's where I'm going to stockpile my wealth. Billy Graham made this statement. He said, if a person gets his attitude toward money straight, it will help straighten out almost every other area in their life. Crucial principle there. Theologian John Stott said, our enemy is not possessions, but excess. Generous people are rarely mentally ill. Which would imply control freaks are those that lose their stinking mind because they eventually reach a place where they realize they were not in control in the first place. Why should I live a generous life? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of God? Yes. That though he was rich, Jesus, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty... His poverty, you might become rich. He was rich. He owns it all. He spoke it all into existence. What motivated him to live a generous life? He was full of grace and he was full of truth. So living a life of generosity is a response and a godly response and a healthy response to say, I, I, I'm going to respond to your grace because you're a graceful God. And because you're a graceful God and you have redeemed me and poured your grace inside of me, I cannot help but live a graceful, generous life. We, we personally believe here at the cross that in the New Testament, grace is the most important theological term that we will ever know. We believe that grace means that Jesus, who knew no sin, was willfully to willfully emptied himself and took the sin of you 
and me, and he willfully died a criminal's death and suffered the wrath and judgment of God on the cross. And as a result of his goodness and grace, he extended to us what we could never earn, what we could never deserve. So if you had to define grace, I would say grace is God giving us what we could never earn or deserve. For by grace, We've been saved. By grace, God leads us. By grace, he loves us. By grace, we're here today. So if you do a contrast of even looking back at the law, going all the way back to Leviticus, even Exodus with the Ten Commands and all this stuff, when people had this, uh, this concept of money being talked about, they gave, they would give in order to be accepted. I'm going to do what I'm going to do so that I can be accepted. Under grace, we don't give to be accepted. We give freely because we are accepted. God loves us. He pursues us. And the reason I would do anything with my life in regards to giving it back to the Lord, why? It's grace. I don't have to do this in order to be accepted. I do it because I am accepted. And if you look at all the other religious entities in our society today, they're all built out of you having to do something to get something instead of you got something and you can't help to want to respond back with generosity. Make sense? So if we're saved by grace, we're to live by grace, we're to give by grace, and we believe that whatever the law, when you study it, required, grace inspires us to go way beyond that. 10% is a starting point for the believer. It's not the staying point. He's called us to do so much more, Dean. So under the law, Ray, my giving is duty that I have to do. I, I got to do it, but I resent having to do it deep down in my heart heart. Under grace, my giving is devotion that I want to do, I get to do, and I'm not going to be penalized by God, but I'm motivated to bring everything I can to the dance. Uh, under law, I give the least I can to try to keep God off my back. Under grace, I give all that I can to express my gratitude to Christ. You see the contrast, guys? And so many people that are saved by grace, oh, I've been saved by grace, they still try to apply a law-based system when it comes to money, wealth, materialism, or whatever. And so they, they, they got a scorecard they keep, and they're like, I'm, I'm still going to give the least that I can't. That, that's not the heart of grace. That's not the heart of the gospel. Grace promotes a heart of generosity. In Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, listen to this, Seth, Matthew 6, starting in 19. Jesus said, do not, do not store up for yourselves your treasures on earth. When, when it comes to the things that God has entrusted and things that you have, don't stockpile this earthly stuff. Why? Moth and rust will destroy it. Why? Thieves will break in and steal it. But but on the contrast, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's no moth there. There's no rust there. There's no thieves there. And then he makes this statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. Whatever your affection is for, whatever you treasure the most, whatever you value the most is going to capture your heart. And what he's saying is, if you allow Christ to capture it and Jesus becomes your ultimate affection, that's where your heart's going to be with him. So everything you do is going to be done as a result of saying, I just want to bring you glory and praise. See, see, see the gap? See, see the gap? So how we steward money and resources and wealth is one of the truest indicators of how well we understand God's word and how much we're willing to really trust him. It's one of the truest indicators. So when it comes to giving, living a life of generosity, tithing, and all this, we have to view ourselves as stewards and not owners. A steward was a person who managed the operation and business that belonged to somebody else. He was a steward. I'm managing what belongs to somebody else. And a good steward, a faithful steward, would do everything he could to take care of what belonged to the owner. And he would try to he would try to bring him back profit as much as he could. A bad steward would squander it on himself and would waste what belonged to the owner. And we're told in Scripture that we're stewards. But most Americans today view themselves as owners, and they view their money and their personal property as theirs to be used however they want to use it. A person who has an ownership mindset does not want to talk to you about their money because they view this money as their money and they say that any question you ask me about mine is intrusive. I'm not going there. That's an owner's mindset. That's an owner's mindset. Stewards are consumed with advancing the kingdom of God. What can I do? How can I leverage what God has blessed me with so that we can invest Advance the kingdom, not, not my small kingdom. Stewards, as even John and Crystal talked about in this video, they will seek out godly counsel to go, hey, hey help me, I don't understand this. I, I don't have a proper view of money and wealth and materialism. I, I, I need help. After I got saved in 1985, I go to this conference in 1986, a year later in I go there and I have no clue. I've never been around church and Christianity and evangelical people at all. I didn't know anything. So I go through my first year of playing professional baseball in 1986, my second year, and I went to this conference one year into my faith, and there was a guy there. I'll never forget this. There was a guy there teaching Christian uh, stewardship principles named Larry Burkett. And I didn't even know who Larry Burkett was, and I later found out that he was almost the godfather that what Ramsey and these other guys have built on really started with Burkett. And I sat there, Drew, and I was like, I didn't even know this stuff existed. And I got wise counsel right out of the gate. And he's the one that taught, you want to honor God with the wealth that he's entrusted. Get a 10-10-80 approach. Give the first 10, save 10, live on 80, and get to the place where you give at least 20, save 20, and you're living on 60, and hopefully get to the place where you can give it all away. And I was like, well, I didn't even know that existed. And as I stepped into this, 
Here's what shifted. There were things that I wanted to do, even things that I liked to do, that I looked and said, I can't do that because it hindered my ability to invest in the kingdom of God. If I acquire that, it's going to require too much of my time. And if it requires too much of my time, not only the resources, it's going to take me away from doing more kingdom-related things. And I'm trying to lay up treasure on the other side and not stockpile it here. And I'm trying to do everything I can here to travel light so that I'm not weighed down because this ain't home anyway. See, generosity is crucial to spiritual growth and spiritual maturation. And the crazy thing for me is we would reject the idea that a person is spiritually strong if they rarely prayed and they never read or studied the Bible and they never shared their faith and they refused to engage in fellowship or they were unfaithful to their spouse, we would look and go, that, that's not being spiritually strong. But for some odd reason, even people that assimilate in the church think that they can rob from God and still be spiritually strong. It's like, do you tithe plus? Do you live a life of radical generosity? I tip God. You're not spiritually strong. You're still spiritually it's like, hold on, why? Because you, you're living life like this. You're, you're gripping it. And God goes, relax. I made you. I love you. Jesus taught that the greatest use of your life is to invest it in that which is going to last. I remember, I've shared this before, me and Foxworthy were going to do a wild game dinner down in South Georgia one time, and as we were driving down the interstate, we passed this old junkyard on the side of the road, and I'll never forget this. We were cruising, and he's like, dude, look, look at that junkyard. I said, yeah, a junkyard. He said, every car in that junkyard, once upon a time, used to be somebody's pride and joy. I was like, it used to be somebody's pride and joy. It's got an expiration date. It doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't sustain. You, you, you want your life to count. Invest in that which will last. Matthew 25, Jesus is like talking about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like. And in those first 10 or 12 verses, he's like, the, the kingdom of God is like this. And he talks about these 10 virgins. And, and, and he talks about having oil in the lamp. And... I, the bridegroom is coming, and you don't know when he's coming, so make sure you keep oil in your lamp, which means make sure you've got the joy of the Lord in you and make sure you're prepared to meet the Lord. The kingdom of God is like, he's coming back, be ready. That's, what, that's the teaching he gives. And then starting in Matthew 25, 14, he basically gives this story about this guy. This man owned this thing, this, this property, and, and, and he called three of his dudes in and said, I'm going to give you all some stuff, and he did. And then he comes back later and says, hey, I'm back. What would you do with what I gave you? And he holds them accountable. So the story's about ownership and stewardship. I'm just going to make observations. You can read it on your own. I'll extract scripture as I go along. First observation would be this. Here's a premise statement. What's the premise? The premise is everything belongs to God, and everything I have belongs to God. 
So if everything belongs to God, it would imply that anything that I've got belongs to God because everything belongs to God. Psalm 24.1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. Even the people that dwell on this planet belong to God. So I'm, I'm talking to people that belong to God. I'm talking to people that have been created by God, who, who've been created in the image of God. And some in this room have repented and responded to the gospel and know Christ in a personal way. And, 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 and some in this room actually are allowing the Holy Spirit to call the shots. I'm speaking to a room even online, and I will tell you, hey, everything belongs to God. He made it all. Verse 14 says, it will be like a man going on a journey. Let me give you all an earthly story to illustrate this heavenly truth, okay? The kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man going on a journey who called his servants, servants and entrusted his property to them. The, what he's saying is God is a generous God. And, and Jesus says, hey, I've come. I've, I've been crucified, buried. I'm coming back again. Let not your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. You believe in God. Believe in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms and dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told I'm coming back. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Get ready. And he's using this saying, I, I, I'm going to die and come back. But in this story, he's like, do you not realize the owner is very generous? He made it all. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. Do, do you not realize that you came into the world? You were naked with nothing. Do you not realize when you take that last breath, you're going back the same way you came in? There's no U-Hauls behind the hearse. Y'all ever seen one? I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I've never seen like, go get his stuff. It don't get buried. I own it all, God says, and I've entrusted you to manage some things that I've given you. Second observation is provision. All right? God has given everyone some talent. Verse 15 says, to one man he gave five talents. To one man he gave two talents. To another man he gave one talent according to each and their ability what do we know about God? God is a generous God. God is a giving God. God gives every one of us in this room something. Talent in this day referred specifically in this text to a certain amount of money. Talent in our day can be money, abilities, what talent, unique gifts that you have, skills, opportunities, jobs, spiritual gifts. Every person in this room has been given something by God because God is a giving God and God has given you certain talents. Why did he give them to you? To glorify him and to be a blessing to others. But there's not one person under my voice that sits in this room that's totally broken, empty. God has given you certain things. And the reason he gives us anything is that we would be a flowing stream, not a stagnant pond, that he can flow through us and it would not stop with us. Here's a perspective. Observation three. God inspires me to use what he's given me. One day God is going to say, what did you do with what I gave you? Verse 19 says, 
the master of the servants came back. He settled the accounts. He wanted a return for what he had invested with these guys. I gave you five, I gave you two, I gave you one, but I gave you something. What's the teaching? One day God's going to do an audit of my life and your life. God says, one day, it's appointed a man to die once and stand before the judgment. One day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for what I've done with what he's entrusted to me. Did you waste it? Did you squander it? Did you use it? If I can get the perspective, I am responsible and accountable for what God's given me, not for what he's given my brother, my sister, my neighbor. Comparison is the death of contentment. I'm not looking at others. It's like based on the way you've you've wired me and based on the way you've gifted me, how do I leverage everything that you've given me for your glory? That's the perspective. In this story, observation four, we see the priority that we are responsible to exercise and maximize anything God's given us. Another way to say it is, it is absolutely wrong to bury what God's given you. It is wrong to set it on the shelf. The first man took his money, doubled it, 100% increase. Second man took what God had given him, doubled it, 100% increase. That's wise. Verse 18 says, but the man... Who, but the man, but, but the man, who had received one talent went off, dug a hole, and he hid his master's money. It is absolutely wrong to hide, to bury, to not leverage what God has entrusted you with. Are you, are you going to be held accountable? Yes. Are you possibly scared to step out of your comfort zone? Yes. Is it going to require taking risk? Yes, you're going to have to take some risk. But I'm going to be held accountable. Verse 26, the master says, you buried what I gave you? I entrusted something to you and you suppressed it and buried it and hidden. you hid it and didn't leverage it? Listen to what he calls him. He goes, you wicked and lazy servant. You ain't even tried. Apathy and being passive is not acceptable. You can't please God by playing it safe. you got to get off the sidelines and get in the game. I would rather fail at trying something than do nothing. I would rather be laughed at. Look at him, he failed. At least he tried. At least he got out there. At least they had skin in the game. Doing nothing is inexcusable. God owns it all. He's entrusted certain things to you. And he's, he inspires me to use it. And we got to get off the sidelines. My buddy Seth, we're going to pray over you today. Seth is leaving this afternoon. He goes back to baseball. He's going to be gone eight or nine months, whatever it's going to be. It's, it's, a, it's a journey. But Seth knows that when you go out there and you compete in a game, there's a chance you might be applauded and there's a chance you might get booed. And all of a sudden you give up a crucial home run in the ninth inning and people boo you when you walk off the mound. How many competitive pitches have Bubba over here with his ninth Budweiser ever thrown in his stinking life? <laughs> boo! You're terrible! Come on, Bubba. 
You drank like a stinking guppy, dude. You ain't ever run a sprint in your life. <laughs> I pay good money to see you. Good money. We're all going to stand before God and give an account one day. And I want to be in the game. I want to be a participator. I don't want to be a spectator. I want to have skin in the game when it comes to life. We're talking about stewardship. I am a steward. I am to manage anything God's entrusted. Observation five, problem. Fear keeps so many people from trusting God. Fear keeps so many people on the sidelines. Verse 25, I love the text that says, I was afraid. I was afraid and hid your talent. I was afraid and I hid. I was afraid and I stayed locked inside. I was afraid. And fear will cause you to make all kinds of excuses for why you didn't do anything. I'm scared. We want you to go share your testimony. I'm scared. So what are you going to do? Well, courage is not anything about not being a little afraid and scared, it's stepping into it, believing God will somehow carry me, even though it's going to be hard. That's how it starts. You're going to share your testimony? I am, but I'm scared. That was my first step. Come share it again. I'm scared. It was easier over there to that men's group with 20, but then my uncle over in Anniston, Alabama, said, come share, and there were 400 people sitting there, and I'm like, "Woo!" He goes, are you trying to impress them, or are you just trying to tell them what I've done in you? Don't worry about how many's there. You're playing before an audience of one, not an audience of 400. Okay, okay, okay. Perspective, back to perspective. And I step into it. Are you scared? Yes. Do it again. Do it again. Now I want you to lead a Bible study in that locker room with those guys. A Bible study? I'm scared. You step into it and you do it. You step into it, you do it again. You step into it, you do it again. And God starts opening up more and more and more opportunities because you, do, because you did one thing. You know what you did? You took that first step. Take that first one, you take a second one. Take that second one, you take a third but if you never take that first step, you're not taking any more. I was afraid. I know you blessed me with some gifts and abilities and passions and some money and wealth, but I, I, I didn't want to use it for you. Verse 24, the man who received the one talent came and said, and, and let me say this to you as well. The reason I didn't do anything is I knew you were a hard man. Yeah, my view of you is, God, you're a cosmic sheriff. You can't wait for me to screw up, and you just want to lock me up. You are a hard man. Why didn't you do anything with what I gave you? He blames the master. He doesn't take personal responsibility. You, you, you didn't share with that guy? Nah. I, I know how you work, God. You, you would have gotten mad if I would have said the wrong thing. I don't want to say the wrong thing to that guy. So this is our life right here. I'm locked up. What do you mean say the wrong thing? Does he know me? No. Where is he headed? Hell. So what are you going to do? Say the wrong thing and send him to hell too? Hell three? You, who are you? You can't send anybody anywhere anyway. I told you to go share with him. That's the reason I too believe that it's so important in this series to talk about why our view and our concept of God is so crucial. 
Because your view of God is going to drive every decision you make. Observation six, here's the principle. As a steward, if I don't use it, I lose it. Exercise. Utilize what God's given you. This principle is true. It's a universal principle. Use it or lose it universally. Whether it's time, whether it's money, whether it's abilities, the master says, you know, you, you, you didn't even do anything with what I gave you. Take what he's got and give it to the other guy. Use it or lose it, whether it's your money, whether it's your muscles, whether it's your mind. You, you see people sit around and do nothing and all of a sudden atrophy sets into their body. And Dallas spends so much time with people that have sat there. My buddy Dallas, he does. He's training all these people, late 60s, 70s, or whatever. And Linda, you know this. And people that have sat there, couch potatoes or whatever, and he's like, hold on, we've got to get the body engaged. And so you're doing lunges, you're doing squats, you're doing planks, you're doing push-ups. We've got to get the body strong and stabilized. If you sit around and do nothing, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Same thing with the mind. It's got to stay engaged. And I've shared this with you, but when Barb's dad passed away at the end of November, 96 years old, if I would have sat down with him the night before he had his fall and busted his head and would eventually die 24 hours later, if I would have sat down with him the night before, turned on Jeopardy, and sat there with him, he would have carved the board up. His mind was engaged. You would go over, hang out. He would have a four or 500-page book. John, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading about this right now. Barb, his mind stayed engaged. He rescued that dog, Bo. He would take that dog for walks and walks and walks throughout the day. He didn't sit around and do nothing. He was reading. He was pondering. He was engaging. If you don't use what God's given you, you're going to lose it. The question you've got to ask I promise you, you've got to ask this question. Use it or lose it. Whose hands have you placed your life in? Whose hands have you placed your money in? Whose hands have you placed your gifts and abilities in? Whose hands are they in? A basketball in my hand might be a friendly game of horse with Nick in the gymnasium. That same basketball in Michael Jordan or LeBron James's hand, same ball, different hands. You put a golf club in my hand, whoa, what a nightmare. We're out there whacking away. <laughs> Chad's played with me. It's military, Dean. It's right, left, right. That's the reason when my buddy Seth, again, when he came back, and he's been playing a little golf, hey, we got to get together. I'm like, yeah, we ought to do that sometime. Because if you see my hack one time, you'll go, what? That same golf club and Scotty Scheffler and Jordan Spieth and Tiger Woods hands, we're talking about major championships. The problem's not with the club. The problem's not with the, the ball. The problem is whose hands have I put it in? My money in my hands, I can royally screw it up. My money in God's hands, trust in his principles. Here's the prize. Last observation. We're all going to stand before God, give an account for the way we've done life. 
Verses 21 and 23 says, the master replied to the two guys that were faithful with, well done, good and faithful steward. You actually leveraged what I had entrusted to you. You've been faithful with a few things. I'm going to give you even more things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Here's the question, Chip. What will I do with what he has given me? What am I going to do with what he's given me? What am I going to do? Am I going to give? Am I going to live a generous life? Am I going to tithe plus? If God took the amount of money that you gave last year and multiplied it by 10, how much would you have earned? That's the tithe equation. That's the 10% equation. If God gave, if he gave you based on what you gave him, multiplied it by 10, how much would you have to live on? Dane, that's the equation. That's the math that we look at here. Let me share with you a fundamental problem in closing. So many people, after they come to faith in Christ, they memorize John 3.16. Yes, memorize John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We memorize that. And then we grab the rabbit's foot of Philippians 4, 19. Yeah, I got that one. My God will supply all I need, brother, according to his riches in Christ. Get all fired up with those. Come on, somebody. Y'all heard these verses. And then all of a sudden, somebody says, uh, hey, man, Proverbs 3, dude, powerful passage. You've got to memorize it. So we open the Bible and go, yes, I'm going to memorize this one. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. Hey, man, memorize the new verse. Yeah, that, 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 that's good. That, that's good. Did, did you read any more? No, nah, no, nah, I memorized that one, dude, because that kind of ties in with my Philippians 419 mindset. <laughs> this is a hook a brother up kind of verse. Hey, hey, let me read 9 and 10 to you. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first fruits of all your produce, from the top 10%, the best 10% that you get, honor God. So, so, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Matter of fact, matter of fact, let's, let's do it this way. Honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first fruits of your produce, so that your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow then, then, then go ahead and trust God with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Then acknowledge him in all that you do and he'll make your path straight. Do you realize that we memorize five and six, but we ignore nine and ten, and when we ignore nine and ten, we actually ignore five and six. You with me? We don't a la carte and cut and paste around here. We don't cherry pick. 
What, what do you do? We, we want to be good stewards. I want to manage what belongs to somebody else. I want to be a trustworthy steward. I want to honor God with everything that I have. You see, this conversation is not about money. It's about treasuring the right thing with our heart so that, so that we steward anything that God gives us, including money for his glory. That, that's the conversation of Scripture. Is first fruit giving a biblical norm? Very much so. Are we called to steward any of this for God's glory? Yes. Even Malachi 3, he goes, hey, hey y'all are robbing me. How? Tithes and offerings. What are we supposed to do? Bring your entire tithe to the storehouse. Church, bring it, bring it to the storehouse. Test me in this area and see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven, Drew, and pour out a blessing so that you can't even receive it. Why don't you test me in this area? So we have a 100-day giving challenge here. Hey, hey, we want to challenge you for the next 100 days. Test God in this area. Tithe. And if God is not faithful, and if God does not meet your need, at the end of the 100 day, we'll write you a check back for everything that you've given because it's not about money. It's about your obedience, and it's about you being faithful to the Lord. And then once you start to do that, and you go, he's trustworthy. Yeah. Shortly after I got saved, I had a guy tell me, he goes, guys, the last part of a person to convert to Christ is his wallet. <laughs> is his wallet. <laughs> right, Joseph? It's like, dude, ah, oh, let, that's what I had a guy tell me years ago. He goes, dude. Let George breathe. <laughs> Let the dollar go. Tim Keller said this. He said, if we do not have a heart to be generous, we have never understood the gospel. <laughs>